We're back, back after the Sooners got their get right game against West Virginia. Back with the Sooners, kind of back in the uh, the thick of the Big 12 title race. And back with Todd Lizenby for the 23rd episode of the Letterman Jacket. Todd, what's going on? Uh, You know, I mean, I think I took that in like everyone did this weekend. A little bit surprising, and it certainly seems like the Sooners are back. So we'll get into it more, but a pretty good performance for Oklahoma. Kind of coupled with a crazy bad performance for Oklahoma State. It really was a bizarre weekend. You know, Eli, every week I do my picks against the spread. I'm not very good this year. I think it's because I picked too many Big 12 games. I would the Big 12 remains perplexing. 23, 23rd episode of the pod. Uh Josiah Wagner, Sooners freshman DB, where's 23? Uh Ameka Megwa, the running back from Washington, I believe, that we've not seen play in two seasons, also where's 23. 1923, Todd. Clarence Birdseye invents frozen food. So we've got him. Uh, I think between you and me, we probably got him to thank for a good amount of ditters. Uh, uh, I had, I had some wings last night dinner. straight out of the freezer and into the air fryer. That? I had a frozen pizza. Look at us. Uh, all right. We're going to talk <laughs> Oklahoma's win over West Virginia. We're going to talk about the Big 12 implications. We're going to talk uh, about some of the firings around the country. It's coaching carousel season finally. It took longer than most years, but it is here. But first, shout out to our sponsors, Rose Hill Builders, National Cowboy and Heritage, uh, Western Heritage Museum, excuse me, Oklahoma Ford Dealers, Our Blood Institute, Bob Moore Auto Group, and of course, our friends at Fire Lake. You can join the team at Citizen Potawatomi Nation. There's more than 75 positions available at one of the nation's many businesses. Go to firelakejobs.com to find out more. All right, Todd, it was a late night. It was a long night. It was a big night for the Sooners at Owen Field. Back there for the first time since October 21st riding a two-game skid, the whole thing, and the Sooners come home, totally get right, 59-20 to win over West Virginia. Everything really after that first series when West Virginia ran through them uh, looked good. Offense bounced back, Dylan Gabriel popped off, Drake Stoops, big night. Defense was good. Where do you want to begin with this one as the Sooners get the win they sorely, sorely needed? Wherever they go from here, we'll see, but they needed that one to just kind of keep things on the rails, and they got it. Well, first, I will ask you this question. Was that your latest night of this college football season it's so far? It's possible. I, I rolled in back here in Oklahoma City about 2.30 a.m. Um, it was a long game. TV timeouts, man. We got to mm-hmm. do something about those. I mean, I, I'm not the first person to, to ring that bell, but TV timeouts in college football are, I don't know if they're killing games for fans, but they're certainly not helping us when we got those late kicks because uh, it was a late night. I think it was close to a four-hour game. Too long. There was Too a long. there was a point where I kept looking and think like I think it was Texas TCU that started at the same time, mm-hmm. and they it started went final later. They yeah, started went, at six thirty. Oh, six thirty. Okay, and it went final when there were still a good seven eight minutes left in the Oklahoma game, maybe more. Um, but yeah, it was it was a very long game. It was a really good performance. It's ironic that maybe your latest night of the season is going to be followed this week with your earliest morning of the season, especially local time out in Provo. But I am local um, at BYU. That's crazy. That's crazy. I I would just say, I kind of said this in our rapid reaction at selloutcrowd.com. I felt like that was the first time in a while that Oklahoma offensively kept their foot on the gas. And I say that not, and it's not like Jeff Levy forgot how to do that or doesn't know how to do that. 
there I think are a lot of you it, fans who might argue that he did. <laughs> well, I think a lot of it, Eli, is that it's hard to do that when you don't have a consistent run game. And I yep. think they found something with A, Gavin Sawchuck, and B, we saw again, Dylan Gabriel unleashed a little bit in the run game, and it's helped this team. It's helped the offense open up some things down the field, and I think this offense is best when they go down the field. Dylan Gabriel doesn't have a cannon arm, but at the same time, he's he's a guy that knows how to attack those spots down the field, and he showed it again on Saturday. Oklahoma took advantage of that, but it all started with the run game, and I think kind of lost in Dylan Gabriel's eight touchdowns and Drake Stoops' big night is that Gavin Sawchuck had 130 yards, you know, so um, I think that was a huge, huge part of the success on Saturday. If they got all season from any of the running backs, what they got from Gavin Sawchuck all night, we wouldn't have talked about the running game once. Um, that is all they needed. I mean, that was a great, great effort from Gavin Sawchuck. He's hitting his stride, and that's a huge development, near-term, long-term, all those things. But that's all they've needed. They haven't needed someone to you know rush for 200 yards, find the end zone four times on the ground. They've just needed consistency, and they got it from Gavin Sawchuck. It was part of the platform to the win I do think Dylan Gabriel we've talked about it a lot uh when he's running the ball not necessarily design runs it doesn't need to look like Jaden Daniels right at LSU the other night but simply using his feet this offense is better and you look at what they did with him at Kansas and, and Oklahoma State that was one of the things they got away from and I'm sure there were reasons for it and maybe um the overall run game factors into how much Dylan Gabriel can move but that was something that stuck out to me even on a night where Dylan Gabriel you know passed you know, entered the top 10 on the all-time passing list, eight touchdowns, uh, first player in OU history that account for eight touchdowns in the game, passing Baker Mayfield seven. All of that, like to me, one of the bigger deals was simply the fact that he was using his feet more, and that seemed to be something of a catalyst. Drake Stoops, another massive game. He, he has eclipsed his 2022 stat line uh, in, two, in the last two games. Uh, he was everywhere. Uh, earning all the praise that he, I think, deserves here in, in the final month of his college career. He's got the bowl game in December, but uh, another big performance from him. And, and uh, shoot, getting Danny Stutzman back. You know, Brent Venables kind of downplayed what was missing at Oklahoma State without him. But after this game, spoke to not just the on-field impact of Danny Stutzman, but the emotional leader element of things. Essentially said, Whatever Danny Stutzman has, it, it brings out the best in everyone around him. It's important for this team. It, it perhaps helps explain at least part of the story in, in Stillwater of, of what felt like it was missing from this team. They had a back for West Virginia, uh, and it, it showed the defense was better. The partnership with, with Kip Lewis seems like something that they're going to be able to stick with. I think that's their best linebacker duo. I think we might have said that for a few weeks now, but we finally got to see it. Uh, and it showed, and, and there's another step of progress for, for the development here. I would just say a few things. Number one, uh, you mentioned Dylan Gabriel. If people haven't read it yet, I really enjoyed your story about kind of the combination of him and Colt Brennan and how he grew up a big Colt Brennan fan and, you know, how he's right there on the passing list next to Colt Brennan now. Um, it's a really cool read, and you you talk about Dylan Gabriel running the ball and it's mentioned in the story a little bit. Colt Brennan wasn't known as a runner, but he was a guy who could just make a little move here or there to get into space. And some quarterbacks, I would argue like in the NFL, Aaron Rodgers is this way. They need to be able to do that. That, you know, that needs to be something that they do to feel comfortable. And it feels like when Dylan Gabriel is allowed to move a little bit, 
it makes him more comfortable throwing the ball. At least, you know, a, a lot of that is because he's doing things with his feet that is opening up the defense. But also, I think that's where he feels in his comfort zone. And, you know, it just it felt like the offense was humming on Saturday, Eli. It really was uh, quite a sight to behold, you know, it was a team that probably, if they didn't take their foot off the gas, could have scored sixty, maybe seventy points in that ball game. And they were they were humming. They were doing the things. Uh, you know, my, the the story I wrote Saturday night was just about how they finally got back to some of the basics, basics that they leaned on early this season when they went six and zero, and basics even across the two years of the Venables era and the Levy offensive era. Norman relying on tight ends. Braden Willis was so important to what they did last year. And for the first nine games you this season, you would have forgotten that tight ends were such an important part of this offense. But Austin Stogner got involved. You know, a lot of folks were, you know, pointing certainly to his pass catching numbers, but even his blocking and and you know, pointing out what has been a, a bit of a struggle for for Austin Stogner. He had a, a, a nice night. He looked, you know, I think I would I say unfortunately. OU fans probably would have killed for him to look like that for, for the first nine games or for him to get used that way, but he looked like the way the tight end is supposed to function in this offense. Uh, they, they got Drake Stoops involved. Nick Anderson was moving downfield. They got the running game going. They got Dylan Gabriel on the move, as you were saying. Those are all the hallmarks of what has made this offense good when it has been under Jeff Levy. They got back to it. It makes you wonder kind of what what was wrong in the last couple of weeks. You could certainly point to the run game as a really central issue, but I guess we got to give Jeff Levy some of his flowers, right? Because we've been on here um, talking about his struggles, been plenty critical, but that was, uh, you know, Drake Stoops called it a, a tremendous night of, of play calling. I think you got to give Jeff Levy some credit for, for rebounding and, and for what the Sooners did Saturday. Eli, Jeff, Jeff Levy is the guy behind the wheel of a sports car, of an offense. And the place that a sports car does its best is on the freeway. And it seems like in the last three games, Jeff Levy at times, and the offense at times, has has wandered. Has wandered all, as if they were going to go, eh, Google Maps, I think I got a better way. I'm going to try to go through this you know, little side route. And whether it's bad play calling or lack of discipline. They found themselves off course way too much. When they stay on the freeway, this offense is a sports car. And I think that's something that, you know, Jeff Levy, as smart as he is, I'm sure at times overthinks himself. And it felt like there was no overthinking on Saturday. It was just attack, attack, attack. I think it was 14 total plays over 20 yards. Um, 14 chunk mm-hmm. plays over 20 yards. Big plays were another from, thing they got back to. that, that they Yeah, from seven different players, too. Mm-hmm. Dylan Gabriel... Uh, Gavin Sawchuk and Jaleel Farouk all had 20-plus yard runs. Stoops, Anderson, Farouk, and Stogner uh, all had 20-plus yard catches as well. Yeah, Gibson so in it there was, too. The touchdown. Yeah, well, did Gibson, yeah, I think Gibson's well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, that would be eight players then over 20 yards. So it was just uh, – or no, seven players, eight, because Farouk had one receiving, one – There you go, uh, there you go. One rushing as well. But, yeah, it was it was just a big night with big plays – and it felt like the foot was never off the gas, and I think that's what Oklahoma has to continue to do. I mean, trick plays work for some teams. Uh, gadget plays work. Just put those in the back pocket right now and just attack. Yeah, this was the, they. It was very north to south. I think a lot of people noted that, and certainly anyone who watched, you know, those Gavin Freeman jet sweeps that uh, very east to west. They were north to south. They did. They kept it relatively simple and it worked and, and you're right keeping the foot on the gas 
there were a couple moments in that game where, you know, the offense had shown something, but we were all sitting there wondering, well, you know, they're up seven. This is usually the time the last month where they failed to pile on and to pull away from an opponent. And are we going to be watching, you know, West Virginia getting itself back in this game because the offense just can't keep the foot on the pedal. They did that this week. And, and that was the difference that, that helped produce their biggest big 12 win of the season. Got the vibes kind of back. I'll say that, you know, before I ask this next question, like there's no debating how big of a win this was for the Sooners in that locker room. Everything they've been talking about the last few weeks, the disappointment, the we're going to stick to the process, keeping everything on the rails, so to speak, was was contingent upon winning this game. This keeps things in front of them in the season. Uh, it, it gets them right. And you could just feel the relief afterward. So there's no debating how important this was for the Sooners. But if you're an OU fan, Todd, and you were sitting at, at Owen Field the other night or sitting at home, you're also probably wondering, you know, where the hell was this the last two weeks? In games, they lost by a combined eight points to, to Kansas and Oklahoma State. The losses that jeopardized their, their college football playoff hopes that took OU out of the driver's seat of the Big 12 title race. There, there's got to be a part of you, if you are an OU fan, that says, where did this team go? Because if you know, it wouldn't have taken a whole lot more uh, for for them to have maintained their position. I I mean I think that's natural for any fan, but I also think you got to realize we're dealing with kids, you know, young men who they have their bad games, they have their good games, and I think coaching staffs who also have their bad games mm-hmm. and good games, and and you know, Oklahoma played two of their worst games as far as mistakes on the road against teams that were capable of beating them. And that's what happened. I think uh, all you have to do is go look at Saturday's results and you see that that UCF team that they beat was certainly Mm -hmm. capable of coming to Norman and beating them with what they did to Oklahoma State on Saturday. So I I just think it's natural. I think it happens. Almost every team ever, including championship teams, with the exception of a few, you go look at their schedule and there's a couple games where they won 23 to 14 against a team that went 7 and 5. You know, Oklahoma just unfortunately for them wasn't good enough to play bad games. They aren't good enough to play bad games against Kansas and Oklahoma State on the road and get away with it. There are there are teams like Georgia and Alabama that may be that good and Oklahoma's not there yet. I guess here's my, or this is a nitpicky one but when you go to the, to the Kansas game, Oklahoma State, you know, officiating or whatever, we can. That's a whole other conversation. But Kansas, OU gets the ball back with like two and a half minutes left. Needs one first down. They didn't have like a, a seven yard yeah. out to Drake Stoops. They could have run. I know they tried the the out route on fourth down at Oklahoma State. That's, it didn't go that's far maybe enough. a bad example to use. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, all right, the Drake Stoops we saw the last couple of weeks. Surely there was a play to to fire at him, get that guy open, and and get closer to that first down. But that's all in the past. In front of the Sooners now, after this win are possibilities, because after the Oklahoma State loss, their path to the Big 12 title game looked really murky, because you were, it was going to require Oklahoma State to lose two games, it's going to require Texas, or, or Texas to lose a game, or all these other possibilities, but they felt really, it felt, it felt like a steep ass. Fast forward seven days, Oklahoma State goes to UCF and lays a, like a real, real post-Bedlam egg. They didn't just lose, um, they I don't know. How would you phrase it? Failed to show up, laid an egg, disappointed. You know what's crazy? I wrote about this last week, Eli. This is a very rare moment. Like It's only happened one other time in my lifetime where Oklahoma State has won Bedlam and then had a regular season game seven Mm. days later. 
Usually it's at the end of the year. Now, in 2021, they went from Stillwater to yep. Arlington against Baylor and got beat in the Big 12 title game. But you got to go back to 1998 to the last time they beat Oklahoma in the regular season, then had to play a game seven days later. And they did play two ranked teams that year. I think it was A&M and Texas, but they lost two straight. So I really didn't know what to expect. There is nothing historically to go off of with Oklahoma State in that spot, but they did not handle it well. And you're right, it opens up a lot. Well, point is, now that's that's one of the two lo- – if you're, if you're OU and you needed a, a way to get into the Big 12 title game, two OSU losses was one of those. And now the, the, the Cowboys have that one. They go to Houston. They've got BYU. It's, it's not a real tough finish. But, you know, after that performance at UCF, you'd say all things are on the table. A Texas loss would really help Oklahoma and, and gives them a pathway. And then beyond that, people almost are doing got that the, on Saturday, too. Almost did. And that's two straight weeks. You know, they've got Iowa State and, and Texas Tech to finish out with. So nothing given there. Of course, all this rests on Oklahoma winning out. They've got BYU and TCU. Um, the people are and doing their very best, but trying to calculate all the other tiebreakers. You know, if, if OU, OSU, and K State are all on a three way tie, I think it, but it, it depends on how the rest of the conference standings pan out. I think K State wins the tiebreaker. The Big 12 rules on this stuff are, are kind of nuts. Like OSU, for instance, in that tiebreaker scenario, has wins over OU and K State, but they would not count. Uh, it's more, it is uh, the, the tiebreaker there is uh, hinges on head to head record against the next best common opponent. Welcome so to the age. Credit. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Welcome to the age of the 16 to 20 team conferences. This is how sure. it's all going to look now when we're trying to figure out uh, in these scenarios who plays in the championship games. It's going to be like that for every conference. And it's, some years you're going to get the break, some years you're not. I, what I think is most interesting about this is both for, I guess, for all four of the teams we talked mm-hmm. about, for Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas State, Oklahoma State, is right now if we had a 12-team playoff, you're all playing for a playoff spot. You know, All you got to do is win the Big 12 and you get an automatic bid. So I, I think you know, moving forward right now how the Oklahoma fan base feels I'm very interested to see in the next few years if they're in a similar scenario how different it is you know what I mean Eli because we've never totally. we've never really felt that before you usually you win you lose one game and you're probably out you lose two and you're definitely out that's not the case starting next year you know back when everyone had the same common opponents when the when the big 12 had 10 teams and played its round robin one true this, champion this- baby there you go. Well, that's, you know, one say they've lost, but in a tiebreaker scenario, like figuring out who, who each of Oklahoma, Oklahoma and K-State yep. have played is, is a complete, you know, mystery deal. And that, that's where trying to predict that tiebreaker now is so hard because we don't know who their next best common opponent will be based on the, the final league standings. But, um, you know, that, that's one scenario. If you're an OU fan, you should be rooting against Oklahoma State. I guess that's easy enough. Be rooting against Texas. That's easy enough. And then I, I believe the Kansas win over K State, which might seem pretty steep now if Kansas is rolling with their third string quarterback. Those are the things that need to happen, along with two more Oklahoma wins to put Oklahoma in that spot. So we'll we'll be monitoring that the next few weeks. But obviously for Oklahoma, simply kind of finding itself back in this place to be in contention, which they weren't that far out of it, but it felt pretty distant. After the Oklahoma State loss, that is big, and, and that gives, whether it's the fans, whether it's these players, 
something extra to carry on to uh, going to BYU this weekend. No doubt, and I think Texas still has a very losable game against Texas Tech on the schedule as well. I mean, Iowa State could get them too, but mm-hmm. Texas Tech is the way that they're starting to lean on Taj Brooks in that running game. They are playing really well right now. It's kind of late season Big 12 football. Can't tell me OU fans aren't going to miss it. The SEC will have its own stuff, but <clears> come on. This is the crazy, wacky Big 12 we've gotten used to. Where? Let me ask you this question. Just... Totally, totally hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Where do you think OU would sit in the SEC if it were this time next year? Would they be I the mean, fourth best team in the league? Fifth, sixth? I mean, I'm I know I'm, I'm putting you on the standings. spot there. No, I mean, you you've, are, got, you've got Alabama, Georgia. Uh, you've got Missouri. Your Missouri Tigers who are playing great. You've got uh, Ole Miss, whose only losses are Alabama and Georgia. You would have Texas in the mix as well. Yep. I mean, they're probably the. I mean, looking at it right now, you've got nine and one Alabama, eight and two Ole Miss, seven and three LSU, ten and zero Georgia, right. eight and two Missouri. That's five teams that we could. I have could them probably, above LSU. Know, yeah, that three loss LSU. So they're probably in the mix of the top. I think they're in the mix of the top seven, and they're not seventh. They're they're probably fifth or sixth. It's, it's them in Texas. Um, we could debate, you know, Missouri, Texas, and Oklahoma because there's probably a drop off, and and even Ole Miss after Alabama, Georgia, there's a drop off, and of course Texas in there has a ten point win in Tuscaloosa. Um, so that that is a it's a good a thought exercise because this time next year Oklahoma won't have to be winning the SEC. Right. To, well, here's what I was going to say. Yeah. Let's say let's say Oklahoma's fifth in the SEC, right? I think in the future of the 12 team playoff, I think if you finish top three in the SEC, you're probably going to get in unless yep. there are some upsets and some, you know, like a number 20 team wins a big 12 championship. And then, you know, say whoever uh, Colorado, cause Dion's got them going, gets in as a, as a at large, but most years the SEC is going to get three teams. So right now, if Oklahoma were the fifth best team in the SEC, they'd be two spots out of getting into a playoff next year. As it is in the Big 12, you've got to finish first. Oklahoma's probably right now odds of winning the Big 12 third or fourth. So they're probably two or three spots out of it right now, too. I guess what I'm saying is it's so crazy that right now fans are upset. And I understand that because the that's the way college football has always worked. But next year, it's going to be completely flipped around. You're still going to be in a really good spot with a really good chance to not just go play in a really good bowl game, but to win a national championship, which is wild to me. I think that I mean the twelve teamer is, is it's going to be fun. It's going to take some of the punch out of bits of the regular season. We're going to lose that kind of one game jeopardy. You lose a game and it feels like your your college football playoff hopes perhaps are done. But think about what we'd be talking about. Even if let's say Oklahoma and Texas were staying in the Big Twelve, uh, or or just this season, what would we be talking about if there was a twelve team field right now in terms of the games we have coming up, what they mean? You'd have so many more teams in contention. I think that's what's going to make it fun. We're going to lose something, but when we have a 12-team playoff, a whole lot more teams are going to be involved. A whole lot more of these games in November are really, really, really going to matter. And I would say, I mean, taking out my own alma mater aside, Missouri's a great example of why the playoff is going to be a good thing, the expanded right. playoff. Missouri, well, a man can dream. Or I've got friends who can dream. But Missouri is never going to be you know, a, a four-team playoff caliber squad they just aren't but this this is good for fan bases when when you have you've got your best year in in close to a decade 
you know, Missouri could finish in the perhaps top 10, they'd be a, a playoff team and even have an outside shot of hosting a, like a home uh, playoff game. Can't tell me that for, for programs like that, that are in that, wherever you'd want to put them, third tier, fourth tier um, of college football, that's where the, the playoff is going to benefit when teams have well, that year. I think a great example is 2011 Oklahoma State. Yeah. They exactly just missed right. out on the national championship game. If we have a 12-team playoff, I you can't talk me out of thinking they would have won the whole thing because they were that good. I mean, 14-team um, playoff, they're in. and I've, Exactly. Even in a 14-team playoff, they would they have a really good chance. Should, I know I, I you know I spent my year up in Stillwater. There's a lot of folks there that uh that are pretty confident twenty eleven national champions would have would have been the case if they could have gotten into that game. Right. Right. And it's just it's just so prohibitively hard. And then, you know, I do love the fact that there is a bone thrown to the group of five, because at least it makes mm-hmm. them relevant because I think in the playoff system now they are completely irrelevant. Um, you know, ex- except for a once in a hundred years type of season where Boise maybe gets Oregon and Washington on the schedule and beats them both or something. <clears throat> but it's it's going to be a lot of fun next year, and I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to take fans quite a while. And what's interesting is, like, the Thunder came here, and you saw fans learn that the NBA game is different than the college game and what's different about it. And Thunder fans now are a lot smarter than they were a decade ago. That's one fan base. With college football, every fan base is going to have to rethink how they look at their team. And as we kind of move on to this next thing, that means you're going to have to rethink also when you fire coaches, when you get the jumps Indeed. on and stuff like that as well. Well, it was only, what is that, 2020 season that Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M were knocking on the door. Uh, they were, I think they finished six. So they, they were right there in the college football playoff chase. In the COVID years year, later. Right? Yep. Yeah. A couple years later. Uh, I think at least one fat extension. I think there were, I don't know, he, he, his contract just kept getting punched up. Jimmy Sexton was doing work for Jimbo Fisher. Texas A&M finally, um, I don't know what the word would be, obliges or caves in. or uh, Some would say gumption to actually go ahead and, and pay what is a $76 million buyout, an airtight buyout. He can go work. Jimbo Fisher can go work anywhere in the country. He can get a job at... At Mickey D's, he could do whatever. He's still getting that seventy-six million dollars. Doesn't offset. He could coach somewhere else too. That's the other crazy part. Or work at Mickey D's. If I had seventy-six million dollars, I I don't know. I probably better hours. Do you know where I would work if I had seventy-six million dollars? Absolutely nowhere. That's where (laughs) I would work. (laughs) Let's be honest about this. I'd I'd work. You know what I'd work on? I'd work on my short game at the country club. Is what I would work on. Well, here's the thing too. It's seventy six million on top of, I think he's earned. I think total he's going to get one hundred twenty two million dollars just at A and M. He did pretty well at Florida State. Jimbo's going to be just fine. And you're right. Uh, he doesn't have to work anywhere. I'll be curious if he lands somewhere just because college football coaches don't tend to tend to find that uh, perspective right in terms of it's time to just step away and live a normal life. You 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 reach that point. Through some They're level psychos. Of, Most of them through, are admitted psychos. Correct. You don't have many who who see when it's right the, the right time to step away. But man, are you a surprised that that A and M finally went ahead and did it at that number? It just felt so prohibitive. But obviously, not prohibitive money at A and M. And two, what do you make of the precedent this sets? And is it going to reset perhaps any of the coaching market that has just exploded and gotten obviously ridiculous over the last decade? 
so was I surprised? I think yes and no. Yes, because the number's so large, but no, because, and this was the point at which I stopped being surprised about buyouts, was when Nebraska paid $7 million extra to fire Scott Frost like 14 days before they could have gotten $7 million. They literally mm-hmm. had to keep him for two more weeks and they would have saved almost $10 mil or $7 mil, something like that. And when they didn't do that, I just realized it's just funny money at this point. Someone that's smarter than me on Twitter pointed out that you can like take a loss on this if you're a donor and offset your earnings or something, and that's why they're able to kind of make this work. I don't know how the all the legalese of that works out. All I know is that we're talking about the jump from I think the biggest buyout ever was twenty one million before this, mm-hmm. and now it's seventy six million. This this has to be the great reset, doesn't it? I mean, this can't become the new normal. And what I really think has to start happening, and this has to come from, you know, the ground up, it has to be a groundswell, which is the one that always takes the longest, is these athletic directors need to have their feet held to the fire for signing these coaches to these ridiculous deals and and putting the university out millions of dollars. These universities have millions of dollars, but that's just stupid. Even if you have the money, it's just a stupid contract. And, you know, the the guys that sign those contracts with coaches, I think they have to be tied with them a little bit. And you can't allow them to go hire another coach if they spend money that wantonly. Did I get that word right? Wantonly? Wantonly? I, wantonly? Wantonly sounds great, but I think it's a I've, different discussion. We can get wantonly? Some, wantonly? I don't know. Wantonly just sounds like a... Now I'm just hungry. Yeah, um, I, it does sound good, doesn't it? <laughs> I could go for some uh, crab rangoon right about yeah, now. Yeah, let's. I don't know. Oh, but it's only ten thirty. We can head out for lunch after this. <laughs> uh, you're exactly right, though. It's, it it starts with the athletic directors and and you know Ross Bjork being the guy who gave him this contract. Um, but but for one, you know, worst got decision Dylan- by a worst decision by a Bjork since the singer wore that duck or goose costume. Do you remember well that? I, it was probably before my time, realistically, but I've got some some cultural <laughs> reference on that. Um, but no, you're you're exactly right that like a guy like that, people got to be asking a lot of questions about him right now. But when you've got donors, because this isn't, I don't believe, coming out of uh, you know the the university library fund. This is coming from donors who, as you said, can write this stuff off, and and this doesn't happen unless the donors are. A fed up enough, which they probably have been longer than they've been willing, but now they're willing to to put up that money, and it's nothing. And th- you know they're going to spend, I think, something closer to one hundred and twenty-five million dollars to buy out the whole staff. They'll spend, I don't know, maybe another seventy-five million to hire a new coach if they really go to that high level of, of you know where guys are getting paid. It's ridiculous. It's all insane money. Um, but have you but ever sort have, of that- have you ever seen the TikTok video where it's Jeff Bezos's money with grains of rice? Yeah. And it's like, here's what you make, and it's one grain of rice, and he's got this giant mountain, and they just siphon off a little tiny bit, and they go, oh, look, there's a luxury jet. Oh, look, there's a luxury car, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a, there's this house in Cabo. That's that's what we're looking at, money-wise, um, which is just, it's ridiculous. But it also makes me laugh, Eli, because some of the same people who have a problem with the and I understand a lot of it is where the money comes from, but uh, I can't believe that all this is going on with live golf and these players are just taking the money and running. The money's in everything. I thought Kyle Porter, who covers golf for CBS Sports, had a funny tweet. 
He's like Jimbo and Phil Mickelson, both getting paid a ton in oil money for being very mediocre at their jobs. And I, that's exactly correct. That's what happened. And you should not get paid that much money for being that bad at your job. And whose fault is that? It's Ross Bjork's fault. When it's the pressure that Nady finds themselves under, because on the one end, it's it's never doing this again. Every AD in the country should be looking at this and saying, I can't let that be me. But on the flip side of it, every AD in the country wants to hire that guy. And at a place like Texas A&M, where the pressure is almost at Alabama, Georgia, Georgia levels, and the money and resources are kind of there, but the history is is just not, and no one really there has done it and kept it sustained it's the pressure to go find that coach. And I think that's why, you know, it's easy to forget now. The reason Jimbo Fisher got that upgraded contract, uh, it was all, it was always ridiculous, but it, the reason it bumped up is because everyone thought he was going to go to LSU, that, that Scott Woodward mm-hmm. was going to hire him there after Ed Orgeron. Uh, you know, the, the, it's the leverage game that these coaches have now that nobody wants to lose their coach. When you're out of school, especially like A&M, nobody wants to lose their coach. You, A&M loses their, you know, top coach to LSU. You can't let that happen if you're Ross Bjork. So you do things like this, but then you get put behind the eight ball. And if you don't have the right guy and, you know, you could probably name on your hand how many coaches have been successful and stayed at a school for 20 years, right? Like these guys, people cycle out. It's just sort of an impossible game, but it's clear that it needs some kind of, I don't know about, you know, formal reform, but hopefully this is some kind of wake up call. Something tells me it won't be. And I think the Texas hey, A&M coaching search that's about to follow will be the first bit of evidence that nothing's going to change. Listen, it's a numbers game, Eli. And numbers-wise, this is not worse than some other sports. I mean, Jimbo Fisher's going to get paid, what, $7 mil a year to not coach? 76 mil total, I mm-hmm. think it is, right? Yep. Um, so think about it. In college sports, you need a coach. Coaching is the most important thing with a college program because – Kids cycle in and out now in one or two years, used to be four or five years. So you have to be, your college program is about your coach. That's the identity. So they're going to be the highest paid guys. In the NFL, it's about your quarterback. How many times have we seen general managers have to overpay quarterbacks because the alternative is not having a quarterback? Yep. Um, you know, so you you have to overpay at times. And I think that's, in, in the NBA, you've got to have a superstar scorer. Those guys make 60 mil a year now. Right. And and we're looking at a guy like James Harden who's doing nothing and teams are paying him 40 mil a year because he's still on a big, huge contract. That's just the way it works. And in college, it's about the coaches. That's where the money gets tied up in. And the sport in college with the most money in it is football. So the coaches are going to get paid the most and you're going to have to take the most risks when it comes to hiring coaches. So I don't think anything is going to change um, as far as numbers go, but I do think you may start to see more athletic directors have to be uh, have to be held feet to the fire for these decisions they make. Well, I'd imagine if Ross Bjork closing it here on on A and M like isn't fighting for his job now, it's going to hinge on this next hire. Like whoever he hires sure. now is going to be uh, might be the last coach he hires, either because it goes so well that. A&M has its three-time national championship coach, you know, national champion coach for the next 10 years or because it's a disaster and Ross Bjork goes with him when it happens. Uh, and the, the and maybe, also, maybe also, Eli, it's worth noting the truth of the matter is I don't think it's the ADs that are hiring this coaches in some of these situations. Well, I think the big too. donors have too much of a say in it. 
Well, and there's a whole discussion around what agents have done to, to drum up this yep. market. Again, uh, credit to Jimmy Sexton that he's the guy who got Jimbo this contract. It's baffling how airtight it is and how ridiculous it is. So, again, Jimbo can go work anywhere. Mo most of these buyouts tend to hinge on not working elsewhere, and you forfeit some of it if you take a job elsewhere. Butch Jones famously uh, was a an analyst making $56,000 right under the threshold at Alabama for a bunch of years, so he could still keep collecting his Tennessee buyout. But Jimbo, as we said, can go work anywhere he wants. Shouldn't go work anywhere with that kind of money, but he's getting that $76 million. That is outrageous. Our recording on a Monday morning, so the other firings or departures around the country, Andy Avalos, Boise State, Brady Hoke, retiring at South uh, San Diego State. And big one in the SEC is, is Zach Arnett, which I think a lot of people saw coming. Um, he'd been the defensive coordinator there, replaced Mike Leach after he passed away last year. Probably, I, I think to many, always felt either hopeful that maybe he you know, would be able to seize that opportunity, but more likely it was a stopgap. He's fired with a few games left in the season. Of note there, uh, on, on some of the short lists you're already seeing for the Mississippi State job, Jeff Lebby's name popping up. Uh, and, and it is interesting in the context through which we've spoken about Jeff Lebby lately. Oklahoma fans have, have certainly felt about him lately. Jeff Lebby's still regarded pretty highly around college football. And I, I do think, you know, as SEC jobs open or just high-level group of five jobs open, Jeff Lebby's name is going to be floated out there. And that's completely independent of the, you know, whether he's going to be back here next year or how, or how things are going with him and Brent Venables. I've seen Seth Luttrell's name floated out there mm -hmm. as well as a, a name that, um, yeah, yep, with the connection that a lot of these guys are going to have with Zach Selman, who's the AD there. Um, you know, I, I think it's not surprising that you would see some of those names. So, yeah, uh, I, I would also just ask you, Eli, because as we're recording this again on a Monday, we just watched Jim Harbaugh not coach. What do you think of that whole situation with the Big Ten? It's a disaster. Uh, <laughs> I love it. it. It's well, so great. Question. Oh, man. I mean, how, so there's the – I was explaining it to a friend who doesn't know tons about college football but has a cursory interest in this whole thing last night, which is real fun. I mean, you've got a team that very, very clearly overstepped a boundary, went way too far clear violation of rules. I think that's pretty obvious. Whatever we find out, whether Connor Stallings was some lone wolf or Jim Harbaugh was the puppet master of the whole thing or somewhere in between. Then you have, uh, it, it's pretty clear that everyone still signs. And we've, you know, it's been reported now that Purdue, Rutgers, and Ohio State were sharing Michigan signals. And so then we're debating, you know, is it about how you get them or that you got them? And then there's the Big Ten, which... Tony Petiti evidently had to do something or felt like he had to do something and got pressured by all the other ADs and coaches to do something. And you levy only as probably big of a suspension as they could or penalties they could, but it's kind of half-assed. I think we can say that on sellout crowd airwaves, right? Yeah, 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 you're good. Yeah, we're good. Uh, and, and Michigan's going to fight it in the courts, which makes it, no matter what, no matter who's right, who's wrong, whether you're a Michigan fan who's saying, Michigan versus anybody or you're an Ohio State fan on the other end of it. It's a complete mess. It's ridiculous. And it ends with Sharon Moore, former Sooner, <laughs> in tears in the postgame interview. I was going to ask you about that and Liz in, Liz out. Talking about Jim Harbaugh like he's fighting for his life in a hospital bed somewhere. 
I'm Liz uh, out. Look. I'll just tell you right now. Yeah. I'm Liz out. It reminds me of when Orlando Brown went to the coin toss after Baker Mayfield got suspended for what ended up being like three plays. The first drive of the game against Kansas or after the crotch grab against Kansas. And he held up his jersey like he just died, which, you know, I'm I'm Liz out on that. Chill out. It's football, well, shoot, man. It's, it's not even the most first ridiculous tribute of Michigan's season when opening day of the year. Oh, I'll remind you that Michigan right. was a self-imposed penalty, self-imposed suspension for Jim Harbaugh. They go out there and do the four. The people they were mad at were, were Ward Manuel, the AD, and the president. They were mad at their own people. Yeah. Oh uh, man! What I mean, what a joke that is. But hey, all right. I, uh, I know we, I know we got to get the Liz in, Liz out. But um, well, I'm, I'm enjoying college, the coaching carousel. It's fun. College athletics programs will always find ways to, to be slighted, and Michigan has maybe found the narrowest, weakest, slighting of all time. And but hey, credit to them. They also went and kicked Penn State's tails. Um, so, so they did that. they're in the top 10, Eli, and everyone in the top 10 kicks Penn State's tail. Well, that's a James Franklin's like one in 73 against the top 10 at Penn State. I think Jim, James Franklin and interim Michigan coach Sharon Moore now have like the same amount of big time Big Ten <laughs> wins. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly <laughs> right. Not great. All right. Liz in, Liz out. Uh, here's an easy one Jimbo Fisher buyout. Would you take it yourself? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And and guess what? I'd probably return your texts even worse than I currently do, which is not great. <laughs> I would be on the golf course a lot. I'd be, uh, I don't know, maybe I'd take up pickleball or something. Uh, I'd be hanging out playing a lot of FIFA. I I basically would mm. just move so I wouldn't die. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the rest of the time, I'd just be hanging out having a good time. All right. Did you uh did you catch? I know you were on the move with UCO Saturday. Did you catch McCabe Matoyer's ejection? I've seen the replay of it. Um, I I know we've gotten into this whole well, officiating bias thing, and I know I don't think that was it. Here's the question: one, it's one question. Should he have been ejected? I mean, it looked like they were just kind of pushing and shoving, but who knows? But the real question: the badge of honor of an ejection in that moment, also in like a thirty point game. Mm-hmm. You Liz in or Liz out on that from McCade Matoyer, who got a fist bump on the way out from University President Joe Harris. That was pretty metal. I'm, I mean, I think I think that's going to be one that the coaches probably don't make him run for. I, he was he was taken up for a teammate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he what he got kicked out for was obviously saying something. If you see the clip, the official takes his hat off as Matoyer's you know five ten yards away from him, barking back over his left shoulder. So. He said something. He said a magic word. I mean, these are guys are twenty something year old young men. I don't think a little bit of cursing should get you that. Um, like I think that should be reserved for either something racist or something you've been warned about. I don't know about the second one. I'm pretty certain he didn't say anything racist, right? Like that's that'd be the dumbest thing to do on a football field. So I I thought that was kind of weak. But as far as the actual taking up for your teammate, that's that is metal. That's what you love in mm. a locker room, and I think those type of moments are the type of things that bring teams together. And again, we talk we talk the same thing in college basketball. What sometimes gets a run going? A coach running out on the floor and getting in the ear of a referee, or in baseball, a coach going out and getting ejected. Sometimes those things are big, and as a as a football player you can actually control that yourself a little bit. I thought it was kind of a veteran move and kind of baller, truthfully. 
And again, if it was a four-point game, different yes, story. Very different. They were just fine. Um, and Dylan honestly, Gager... they could have put they could have put Drake Stoops in at his spot, and Stoops probably would have dominated. <laughs> Drake Stoops could have done anything the other night. <laughs> uh, he had something going that last Big Twelve home. I don't know some kind of superpower because uh, he was just unstoppable. Dylan Gabriel, kind of in relation to that play, he was talking about you know football is competitive. It's a hot sport. He said if you want something less competitive, go watch tennis. Liz in or Liz out. I know our buddy Ryan Chapman took took mild offense. Um, Liz in or Liz out on tennis as a much less competitive sport than football. I I think competitive is probably the wrong word to use there for Dylan Gabriel because I think tennis is as competitive as football. It's just a different type of mm-hmm. competition. I, I think I've said this before. I may have said this with you, but I had a coach that always told me, if you want to play a contact sport, go play basketball. Football is a collision sport. And I think that's what makes it different is there are real actual collisions and not only physically is that different, but mentally it takes being wired a little bit different. And I think that's probably at the root of it, what Dylan Gabriel meant. So I get what he was saying, but I do, I, he's wrong to use the word competition. Big 12 tiebreakers, as we discussed, like if this ends in a three-way tie and it's about, you know, who beat uh, Iowa state or who didn't, you listen in on, on the wonkiness of that where someone's probably going to come in. Jilt, Dude, come I've, out got of that the best, I've got the best idea. We go to the new Rockney Memorial at Madison Green, Kansas. We have Brent Venables. We have Chris Kleiman. And we have Mike Gundy meet there. And we do the coin toss like on Friday Night Lights. Ooh. I think that would be great theater, great TV. Uh, Brett Yormark could maybe try to, you know, give Brent Venables a two-sided coin so he'd be screwed or something. Uh, I think that would be awesome fun if we could do that. Of course, it makes it's common sense. If three teams have all played each other, you should go head to head. But that's where Oklahoma got lucky this year to not get Kansas State because you can't go head to head when Oklahoma and Kansas State haven't played each other. So. Um, I get why they do it the way they do it, but it's it just it's pretty obvious to me. If you're tied with two teams and you beat them both, you should be ahead of them. So well, it's you know, if you're Oklahoma State, there you're like, what was the point of us beating Oklahoma and Kansas State if we're not going to get anything out of it? That would be a fair lament. But that common opponent deal, I guess, true. makes some sense when you've got 14 teams, and th- this is what happens when you're 14 this year, 16 next year. All this, everything's blown up. You think? You think they're thinking about tiebreakers when they're adding teams and poaching right. the, the Pac-12? No. So this is where what? we end tie up. Tiebreakers get people talking, and that's mm-hmm. that's really the goal of all of this. And it, yes, you're right. That's a fair lament for Oklahoma State. Also, don't get beat by 42 in Orlando. Well, that's that's, exactly. that's also fair. And Oklahoma State can prevent all this by beating Houston and BYU, pair yep. of teams that um, don't have a lot of good going for them right now. So they, they've still got it's still in their hands. Uh, all right, we hit on on Sharon Moore's tears. Um, Bama, Alabama's kind of looking like Alabama again. Maybe not vintage like to uh, Jalen Hurts Bama, but um, they look good. They might end up in front of Texas in the college football playoff rankings this week. As we discussed earlier, Texas beat them week two in Tuscaloosa. Pretty sure, sure-handed win. You Liz in or Liz out on Alabama jumping them without, you know, same number of losses, all that at this point in the season. I'm Liz in. I think the more the season goes on, the less head-to-head should matter. The more it should be about the entire uh, resume. And I think two things for Texas right now. Number one, they've got injuries. 
um, which, you know, whether you like it or not, that affects how you look at a team. And number two, they don't have the momentum and because of the injuries that Alabama has. So I think that should play into it as well this late in the season. I saw an interesting tweet, Eli. I don't know if you saw this, but we're just an upset or two away. Not much has to happen for us to end up with the exact same four-team playoff that we got in the first year of the four-team playoff, which was Alabama, uh, Ohio State, Florida State, Oregon. Hmm. We're we're really close to that being there again. That could very easily happen. So um, I thought that was pretty interesting. But I'm I think Alabama is very dangerous right now, and you do not want to catch them, whether it's in the SEC championship game, uh, if you're Georgia, or in a college football playoff. Well, we'll finish here. After watching Michigan, after watching Georgia and Alabama, strikes me that that's the the top top tier right now, and that barring a change and obviously upsets happen we got to play the games we may well be staring down a, a title game of michigan and the winner of that sec title game between alabama and georgia you see it going anything different you you liz in on that final or you liz out thinking that we're going to get something else somebody else will be there i mean if i had to bet that's what i would bet on i think just odds wise that's going to be your best bet but i'm going to say i'm liz out just because something crazy always happens um and I think if there's, I think Oregon is definitely a team to keep an eye on that could sneak into this thing. And, you know, the team that's kind of sleeping that no one's talking about that's just been creeping through is Florida State. Um, you know, they've got a ton of talent. Could they burst on the scene and maybe get a win uh, in the first playoff? I don't know. But I'm Liz out on just saying that chalk's going to happen. Florida State team that almost lost to Miami in a backup quarterback. That's I think that's I what know. I'm saying. You know, Washington and, and Florida State, I guess, have shown some cracks lately, but they're still unbeaten. Still a chance to get there unbeaten and be there. Uh, that'd be a fun playoff. I can say that. But Todd, we're going to close it out there. That is it on this first edition of the Letterman Jacket for the week. If you made it this far, subscribe, review. If you liked it, tell us. If you didn't, keep it to yourself or let us know. Either way. Uh, thank you, as always, to our producer, Jacqueline Musgrove, Michael Martin, creative director, Michael Lane. And we will be back with more all week at selloutcrowd.com and back on the Letterman Jacket later this week. Thank you for listening.